Welcome to the public morality. According to the investigative work of ProPublica, another Supreme Court justice has played fast and loose with ethics. Justice Samuel Alito took an Alaskan fishing trip courtesy of Paul Singer, who flew Alito to Alaska on his private jet, which ProPublica estimated would have cost Alito over $100,000 had he chartered the flight himself. Alito did not disclose the gift. He also did not later recuse himself from ruling on a matter involving Singer's businesses. The appearance of conflict of interest coming on the heels of ProPublica's reporting of Justice Clarence Thomas, who also seemingly crossed the ethical line, has renewed calls to enact term limits on the Supreme Court. Currently, justice on the nation's highest court serve for life. But as the elasticity of American democracy reached its limits with the latitude is extended to the court. Joining me to discuss the Supreme Court and term limits, we welcome back to the public morality, political science professor, Paul Collins. Professor Paul Collins, welcome to the public morality. Thank you so much, Byron. It's great to be back. I, I want to begin our, our conversation. Um, to use legal terminology, I find it difficult to believe reasonable persons would conclude there's nothing wrong with Justice Samuel Alito taking a trip from an individual who would have business before the court, nor recuse himself, nor report the gift. I realize that in our, shall we say, uber-partisan climate, my statement could sound biased to some listeners. How do you see it, sir? I see it the same way as you. Um... I find it almost impossible to imagine that an average person would not see a problem here. Uh, it's really demonstrative of just how out of touch Supreme Court justices have become. Um, the notion that it's okay for a Supreme Court justice to take these luxury trips valued at you know over $100,000 and not have to disclose them and then participate in cases involving the the actors that finance these trips, it's frankly outrageous. Let, let, let's assume momentarily that um, Justice Alito is guilty of no mouth, actual malfeasance. Would this still be a problem and explain why if it would be? He, he probably hasn't violated the letter of the law, um, but he's certainly violated the spirit of the law. Um, this idea that he doesn't see the problem as we saw in his Wall Street, his Wall Street Journal piece, that's it's really hard for me to rectify, um, especially for somebody that spends their time writing opinions and spends their time interpreting text. It's just odd to me um, that Justice Alito doesn't see the problem here and how this is going to feed in to the, the decrease in public faith for the institution of the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I'm sort of hearkening back on your previous a previous answer, but in the larger sense, I, I don't recall ever having a Supreme Court justice, for lack of a better word, try and get in front of a story by publishing an op-ed in any publication. So even Justice Alito's actions in one sense feels very political. Now, maybe we don't hold the court as a political institution, but it is indeed a political institution. Your thoughts? I, I view the Supreme Court as a political institution, and I actually think that we all should. Uh, the founders of this country set up a political process for selecting members of the Supreme Court by having the president appoint and the Senate confirm. So while we like to think of the Supreme Court as a little bit less political than the other branches of government, there's no question that it's political. Sometimes it's partisan, it's often ideological. And I think we'd have better conversations in this country about the Supreme Court if we admitted some of these very basic facts that you just pointed out. The court is political. Yeah, you know, I find it, um, it, it, from my perspective, rather ironic, given that Justice Scalito wrote the majority opinion in the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, where he opined, quote, the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. Might one hold similar for Alito's trip 
as, along with his failure to, re, to recuse himself. When, when, when would one consider that part of our national tradition? Yeah, you wouldn't. Um, I, I mean, this is just sort of strange that we have Justice Alito, and he's one example, because we could be having the same conversation about Justice Thomas um, mm -hmm. and, and to a lesser extent, some of the other justices. Um, but, you know, this just goes to show how detached the Supreme Court has become from reality when they're they're behaving in this way. You know, Justice Alito turns to the partisan editorial pages of The Wall Street Journal. And it, it, the way that read to me is that, I mean, he appeared offended by the idea that there was anything inappropriate about this. And I, I, well, let me give you an example. So I had an opportunity to talk to some scholars from largely the global South last week, and we discussed this a little bit, and they found it almost impossible to believe that American judges would behave in this way. You know, whether, and you sort of touched on this earlier, but I'm really getting at um, sort of the, the, the historical court perception. So, so in a larger sense, whether Justice Alito, as you referred to earlier, Justice Thomas and his um, infractions reported by ProPublica, whether they actually did something wrong really misses the point here, right? I think so. I, I think we have an expectation that judges should hold themselves to a higher standard. They should recognize that you know, there is a clear, at least to me, appearance of conflict in, in this type of behavior. And the fact that they don't see it, it's really surprising. And I raise this, um, these set of questions with you uh, because uh, Justice the little, uh, the scenario reported by ProPublica, again, placed the focus on the Supreme Court and the issue of term limits. So, uh, Professor Collins, have we reached a point in your view to take seriously um, the notion of term limits for members of the court? I think we absolutely should. Um, and, and I'm an advocate for staggered 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices. Um, now, would that be specific for the Supreme Court or, or would you hold that for the federal bench in general? You know, it, it's an interesting question. I, I think the Supreme Court has developed in an unexpected way um, that that makes the logic behind term limit behind life tenure you know not quite as relevant as it was in the founding era with lower court judges i have no objection to term limiting lower court judges i think it's a little bit more complicated about exactly how to do it because there's so many lower court judges and because you know some of them have life tenure some of them don't have life tenure in general, as a world, you know, the democratic world has moved towards term limiting all types of judges, um, including in America. Only Rhode Island has has life tenure for um, their judges, and so basically the whole the whole state system, with one exception, has abandoned this idea of life tenure. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I certainly don't want to um, sound as though I'm advocating that judges. Uh, all judges have to seek elective office. I would hate to have people running for the for Supreme Court justice have that on the ballot as well. If we don't have enough to consider, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't like I don't like the idea of electing Supreme Court justices. I think we can work within the current structure. I think that there's a there's there's a few different ways that we can term limit Supreme Court justices that make sense, and that will solve some of the issues that we're having because. You, when we're talking about why we might term limit Supreme Court justices, we really have to think about this juxtaposition of, you know, do we want judges to be independent or do we want them to be accountable? And then if we want them to be accountable, you know, accountable to whom and how might we be able to do these things? Well, well you, you mentioned the founding era and um, life tenure is, uh, assumed, right? Because the Constitution is uh, silent on how long a justice can assume or can uh, um, sit. So it's assumed life, but it doesn't really say anything. And and life in the 18th, 19th centuries is not the same as life today. 
That's exactly right. And this is where the argument for life tenure in 2023 starts to fall apart. Um, so, you know, if we think about life expectancy in the founding era, it was about 40 years of age. But if you made it past childhood, it was much longer. So, so I took a look at some statistics on Supreme Court justices and in, in 1789, the average lifespan was 67. Today, it's about 80, right? So Supreme Court justices are living almost 15 years longer. Um, probably more importantly is that they're serving almost twice as long. And so in the founding era, the Supreme Court was not this powerful institution that had substantial authority over our everyday lives. Instead, it was really not that desirable a position to have. So justices would go on the Supreme Court, serve a brief number of years, and then move on to other positions, sometimes what we would consider to be lesser positions today, like a, like a governor or a, a legislator. What, in your view, overall would be accomplished if we if we were to enact term limits? So I think there's a few arguments that make term limits uh, attractive. And so one of the first things is that the confirmation process has really become a mess, right? So every time there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, we have these really, really high stakes fights and this encourages the Senate to behave in strange ways, like you know, holding seats hostage, for example, not letting President Obama um, appoint Merrick Garland and giving Merrick Garland an up or down vote. And the Senate appears really, really partisan when it does these things. And this makes the Supreme Court look very partisan because if the stakes are so high, it suggests that these judges are very partisan. Um, other things that suggest like that term limits would be useful, presidential appointments are very, very unpredictable. You know, you get a Donald Trump, uh, a four-year president that has three appointments. Jimmy Carter, a four-year president, has zero appointments. And at least for about a century, we've had Supreme Court justices engage in what we call strategic retirement which basically means that they step down when a president of their you know, political party, in essence, um, is in office and they're likely to appoint a favorable person. And another issue we have here is that the Supreme Court has become really, really out of step with public opinion. And part of this is because of life tenure, because the justices are just serving for about a quarter century and, and they're so far removed from the public that they don't realize they're making these decisions that are really out of step with what the public wants. And, you know, you mentioned the Dobbs decision earlier. That's the kind of classic example of this, right? So Roe versus Wade is a decision that 60% of the country, in, including the majority of Republicans, want it upheld and you have the Supreme Court overturning Roe and it's really hard to attribute that action to anything other than a, a change in the membership of the court. You, you mentioned the court, the court sort of being out of step, but couldn't one argue that when the court ruled in um, Shank versus U.S. and basically um, said that the the first amendment this is, this is this is my interpretation the first amendment is not as important as going to war that the court in effect was out of step and that was what 1920 so this, this you know or 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 um i don't i don't know if plessy would would, would apply but there have been times when the court has been out of step this is not that's not new is it how would you say that no, no, uh, it's not unusual for the court to render decisions that that go a little bit against public opinion. Um, but generally speaking, historically, these decisions are more exceptions than the rule. And, and the court actually tends to align um, quite closely with public opinion. There's There's been a number of studies that look at this. And the court, it doesn't seem to really like to go against public opinion because it, it wants public support. It rarely um, is ahead of public opinion. Of course, there's exceptions like Brown versus Board of Education. But what we're seeing now is, you know, 
it, it's it's the most conservative Supreme Court, you know, probably in American history. And it's moving very, very quickly. And it's moving in a way that is not consistent with public opinion. And so this is part of the reason why we're seeing this backlash against the court. And, you know, just as one example, public support for the Supreme Court is at an all-time low since we've been measuring it. Only about four in 10 Americans have faith in the Supreme Court. And this is problematic for an institution that relies on the public in order to get its power. Well, wasn't it wasn't President Andrew Jackson when um when Justice Harlan, not Justice Harlan, um uh I'm I'm drawing a blank. God, it's, it's a pain to get old. I'm drawing a blank. But when when it was when the Trail of Tears, uh, any removal act was ruled he ruled against him, and President Jackson said, "Well, he's ruled against me." Uh, let him let let him see and enforce it. And in other words, Supreme Court power is sort of ruled in our belief that the Supreme Court has power. It doesn't really have any actual power. Would that be accurate? How would you how would you state that? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, during the founding era, we talked about the Supreme Court as having neither the purse nor the sword, meaning the sword, you know, it doesn't there's no Supreme Court police running around the country saying you've got to follow this decision. And there's no power of the purse, meaning the Supreme Court, unlike Congress, doesn't have money to make sure its decisions are enforced. And so in essence, the Supreme Court relies on the legislative branch, the executive branch to to do the enforcing or to fund the enforcing. And the goodwill of the public is the other um, main thing that the Supreme Court relies on. We have to have enough faith in the Supreme Court that we agree to follow its decisions. And where this legitimacy really matters is, well, the expression is legitimacy is for losers, which basically means, are you willing to follow a decision you disagree with? And if the answer is yes, then the institution has legitimacy. If the answer is no, then the institution is gonna have a problem And increasingly, we're seeing more and more Americans question the idea of following Supreme Court decisions that they disagree with. Given its, throughout its history, the the court has been allowed to police itself in terms of ethical norms. Given the reporting by ProPublica, not only for Justice Alito, but also for Justice Clarence Thomas, it seems, at least to me, term limits would not solve the recent issues related to Alito and Thomas. How would you respond to that? I think that's accurate. Um, term limits are largely helping to solve a different problem, um, problems, plural. There's some minor relationship where term limits can fit into this picture. And so, for example, um, th- there's a proposal that that's probably the proposal that seems to have the most uh, support uh, amongst reformers and scholars, which would basically make Supreme Court justices after 18 years go into a type of senior justice position. And where this fits into the ethical concern is that if a justice felt the need to recuse themselves, that is to say not participate in a case, then a senior justice could step in and do that. Today, justices are very, very hesitant to recuse themselves because they're worried that if they step down, you might have a four to four tie, which isn't really a great thing for the law. They worry that people might pressure them to not participate for partisan reasons. So in a small way, um, term limits help. But the real issue um, with respect to the Justice Thomas and Justice Alito is the Supreme Court really needs a, a code of ethics, um, you know, and it's highly unusual um, amongst constitutional courts in the world that it does not have a code of ethics. Now, we saw a touch on this, but as a procedural matter, the term limits is something that could be achieved through the legislative process, correct? Probably. <laughs> so, so there's three major ways that you could term limit the Supreme Court. So one, and no one would disagree with this, would be through a constitutional amendment. So you just alter the Constitution to, to whatever 
you want the term limits to be. Um, now, the problem there is that the Constitution is incredibly hard to change. Uh, and so very few people think that that would actually happen. Um, and so the second way is through this legislative process. And so I happen to believe that you can do it in a matter that's consistent with the Constitution. Not everybody would agree with me on that. Um, but but the gist of it, and, and to be to be fair, there are a lot of different proposals. Um, I, I find the most persuasive proposal constitutionally to, to basically say, okay, you have life tenure consistent with the constitution, but after 18 years, you become a senior justice. And we have historical precedent for this in this country, not with respect to um, term limiting Supreme Court justices, is, but for about a century, we've had uh, judges assume senior status uh, on the federal courts. And as a senior justice, basically what you would do, you would participate in some activities of the court, you could oversee lower court cases. And as I said, you could step in um, if a justice needed to recuse themselves. There's questions about whether or not this is consistent with the Constitution, but because the Constitution is just so very vague about the process of appointing and confirming a Supreme Court justice, and because the language surrounding life tenure is so vague, it seems that this would be okay. Um, the third way to do it is actually even easier than the first two. It's just to ask Supreme Court justices during their confirmation hearings to agree to step down after 18 years, but no one's ever been willing to do that on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So if, if there was um, legislation that passed, miraculously, I might say, passed the House and the Senate, signed by the president that limited the terms of the Supreme Court to 18 years, um, and given our current political climate, that, that would invoke a court challenge. Who would decide that? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so presumably the Supreme Court, uh, although you can see, you know, from, from, from your uh, laughing, the issue here, right? Um, that letting a group of nine justices decide, you know, what could be the, the their own fate, um, because, you know, when you start to get into the weeds of this legislation, there's questions about would this just apply moving forward? Would it apply kind of retroactively or to the modern court, at least. Um, but seemingly, you know, th this is our most august institution. And so one would think that the appeal could go to the Supreme Court. Now, they don't have to take it. Um, that, that's the one of the things that we often forget about the Supreme Court is that they have almost entirely discretionary jurisdiction, meaning they, they just get to pick and choose what cases they hear. So it, it, I think they would recognize the issue with taking that case because it implicates their self-interest. When we consider the court's history, uh, it, where we are right now is much different than when we were when Abe Fortas was forced to resign. And it clearly doesn't appear the court, in my view, has the ability to police itself in the same way that seems to bolster an argument for term limits because we've 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 been deferential to the court and it doesn't seem like we can no longer afford to be in that sense. Your thoughts, sir? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we're in a a bad place in America with respect to how the Supreme Court is viewed in the eyes of the public, and I just don't really see it getting any better. Um, you know, one of the analogies we often use when we're talking about public support for the Supreme Court is this idea that the Supreme Court has a reservoir of goodwill, right? So, you know, picture a lake and it's filled with water. And every once in a while, the Supreme Court might, you know, draw a lot of water out by making an unpopular decision. But the water usually, you know, the reservoir usually fills back up. That's the reservoir of goodwill. Right now, that reservoir is pretty depleted, and I don't know how it's going to be refilled because we usually talk about this reservoir of goodwill with respect to Supreme Court decisions, 
But now we're adding on top of that these ethical controversies that are facing the court. You know, if, if you think about this week alone, where the Supreme Court is very likely to make some highly controversial decisions that will deplete that reservoir of goodwill, and then you add what seems to be like every single week we have a new ethical controversy facing the Supreme Court, it's really, really hard to reach the conclusion that this institution can police itself. Mm. Um. Based on your, your, your last response, given where we are and the reasons you and I are in conversation today, the court has devolved in stature. In other words, it seems to me how we've held um, the executive branch. Uh, I mean, I, I recall at a time when a president um, going into the year of an election had a 44 45% approval rating, he could very well be in trouble for re-election. Now, not so much. Um, and how we hold the legislative branch and the, and the Supreme Court seemed to be above all of that. Now, it seems though we've, those two other branches has pulled the court down to their unpopular level. Yes. Um, so, you know, if we were having this conversation, say 15 years ago, uh, we would be talking about how public support for the president and Congress is pretty low. I mean, it's always been low for Congress. Um, but the Supreme Court was always quite significantly above the, the executive and the legislative branches. But now, you know, the Supreme Court is well under 50 percent. And what's notable is that it, it, it doesn't seem to be changing. And in fact, I can imagine it getting lower. Um, now, part of this is because public faith in institutions is also going down in general. So not just the executive and the legislative branches, but also the media, right? Public faith in the media has been going down. And this is all interrelated. I mean, this isn't the major explanation for why public faith in the Supreme Court is so low, but it is an explanation that has a lot of legitimacy too. How much in your view, uh, did it matter that um, you, you mentioned Merrick Garland earlier, but his being denied an up or down vote on the court, coupled with the uh, uh, the way uh, Amy Coney Barrett was put on the court, how much has that influenced the current moment where we are right now? That's another main. That, that's another major factor. Um, so you know, there's three major factors as to why the court's legitimacy is so low. So. You know, there's a decreasing faith in institutions in general. There's the problems that went down with the confirmation of Merrick Garland and, and Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. And then there's the actions of the Supreme Court itself. And that, that's really the big one is decisions like Dobbs overruling Roe versus Wade. But getting back to the, the confirmation issue, what, what the public really viewed there was just how willing the Senate and Republicans in the Senate were will, willing to play games with who gets to appoint Supreme Court justices, with who gets to sit on the Supreme Court. And this looked really, really bad um, in the eyes of the public. And it reinforced the idea that the Supreme Court is a partisan institution. And that's an idea that, you know, Americans can kind of live with the notion that the Supreme Court's partisan, political, but they don't like to have it thrown in their faces. Um, and it really highlighted the fact that the Supreme Court is, is, is a pawn in a game that politicians are playing. I, I guess, it was, you know, looking at the history of the court, um, where it seems to have changed is, is Dwight Eisenhower was famous for saying that the worst thing he did as president was appoint Earl Warren Chief Justice. Kennedy wasn't happy with Byron White. So you've, um, and I don't know if, uh, I'm, a, I'm sure there's other presidents um, uh, that, that were not happy with Supreme Court uh, uh, picks. That said, we have gotten to a place that, at least on the high profile issues, we can guess with some accuracy on how a judge is going to vote on a particular case. Every, every now and then we're surprised. And that not 
And that hasn't always been the case. That that seems to be a change in the court's history. How do you see that, sir? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's no question that Supreme Court justices have always been ideological. What's different now is that they're not just ideological, they're partisan. They're very, very predictable, right? So we can sort the Supreme Court today and the six justices appointed by Republican presidents are all more conservative than the three justices appointed by Democratic presidents. And that's actually the first time in the nation's history that we can say that with complete confidence. In the past, we'd have you know, a moderate Republican who might side with the liberals more or, or vice versa. But today, because of the statements you know, that you just said that presidents have made about regretting certain Supreme Court appointees, Today, a substantial amount of effort goes in by the White House, by allies of the White House, by interest groups, by other types of social movements to make sure that on the conservative side, you know, any Republican nominee has the real true conservative bona fides. And that's largely the role played by the Federalist Society. Or on the liberal side, that you know, we'll know we'll, we'll have a good deal of confidence that a Democratic appointee will indeed, you know, vote closer to the way that an Elena Kagan, a Sonia Sotomayor would vote than a more moderate liberal. I, I guess what 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 what's 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 striking to me is either one of those scenarios. It seems to me that we have robbed that independence, which has really been crucial to the court legitimacy. And that is sort of evaporating. And, and how does that hurt democracy? Yeah, I mean, in some ways we have. I, I, the notion that we can you know, confidently predict Supreme Court justices is more true today than it has in the past. And so, you know, I, I, I sometimes say to my students when I'm teaching them about this topic, you know, if you could have one explanation for why Supreme Court justices are going to vote the way they do, it's their ideology. And you're going to be right like 65 percent of the time. For some justices, you're going to be right about 70 percent of the time. And in salient cases, you're going to be right. I, I mean, honestly, 75, 80 percent of the time. That is not you know, what young college minds necessarily want to know, that in a, in a highly salient case, like, a, like a, a Dobbs, a case about abortion rights, that you don't need to know anything about the law. You just need to know that there's six Republicans and three Democrats, and you can essentially accurately predict the outcome of that case. Uh, recently, former um, Speaker Nancy Pelosi endorsed term limits in light of revelations about Alito and earlier about um, Thomas having crossed ethical lines. We usually touched on this earlier, but I guess I get lost in how term limits comes up in lieu of ethical violations. And if, and if they're separate issues, is term limits in this case being used, not to criticize, criticize Speaker Pelosi, but isn't term limits being used as sort of a hammer to, to, to punish um, the legislative body, I mean, the judicial body, and is that in our best interest? You know, I, I think there is something to that because I think more and more as these controversies come out, these ethical concerns come out, we see politicians who have been somewhat reluctant to use the hammer. Um, they're more comfortable with it. And, you know, I, I think the the sledgehammer is expanding the size of the Supreme Court, which I, I don't support that because I think you'll end up with just a tit for tat game and, and the Supreme Court will just grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, but it it does correspond to these ethical concerns, the willingness of politicians to talk about it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, if you were to institute 18 year terms and move justices into a senior justice, this position, it could help solve this issue of recusal because justices, they really don't like to recuse. They don't like the idea of having an eight member court. This might make that an easier pill for them to swallow. So there is a sort of indirect relationship. Um, but, but I think you're right that politicians get more comfortable with 
talk about reforming the Supreme Court when these ethical conundrums come up? I, I, I guess, again, going back to my reasonable persons having not attended law school, and the only bar I've passed is my local tavern. <laughs> but, but, but that said, though, if my spouse is on the phone with the chief of staff of the president, and there's a matter in front of me that um, involves the president of the United States on a particular action, which my wife's been on the phone about, I don't think, I don't know how many days of law school I need to know I probably sh shouldn't be hearing this case. Absolutely. And if anything, maybe law school is the reason why they can't see that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just shocking. And it goes to show how out of touch these extremely elite justices have become. I mean, you know, we're talking about term limits, but let me frame something just a little different than the way we normally talk about it. Okay. If you're like me, you look forward to retirement, right? I look forward to a day that I'm not working and teaching all the time and I can spend my time with hopefully my, my grandkids at that point in time and I can go fishing and I can play guitar and I can do all of those things that you know we look forward to after a career well spent. Supreme Court justices do not see the world that way. They see power. And so they stay on the court, half of them die in office, right? So these are people with amazing pensions, better than almost everybody else in the country, but they don't take up those pensions. Instead, they just remain on the court because they like power. They like the way that they're viewed by everyone else. And so these folks are, are out of touch in general with what it's like to be an average American. So, so are you saying when a billionaire takes you on a chartered plane at the cost of roughly $100,000 and you and, and you happen to be on the Supreme Court, it's not because of your charming personality? Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things that Pelosi also left open in her conversation uh, was expanding the number of justices. Again, nine is a number we've settled on. We've had three, we've had five, we've had seven. I think we've had, what, 13 was the most we've ever had? I think it was 10. Uh, 10, okay. No. Uh, uh, the, but the point being, this, again, is reactionary. And, and how concerned are you that these reactionary policies really take the country further away from those established norms. In other words, attempts to reestablish the democratic guardrails in, in this reactionary way could further erode the democratic guardrails. Did I lose you? Do you, you, you get that? No, I got it. I got it. So I think some reform proposals would go off the rails. And, and I think ex Supreme Court expansion is one of those proposals that, you know, Congress has the power to set the size of the Supreme Court, as you said, it's changed several times throughout history. There's nothing really magic about the number nine. Um, we settled on it because that's how many circuits there were uh, at the time when Congress last altered the size of the Supreme Court. But to me, that's kind of like the nuclear option, um, because what's going to happen is if you raise the size of the Supreme Court, you know, the number now is often 13. Um, which would, you know, presumably mean that there will be a seven to six Democratic to Republican majority on the Supreme Court if it was enacted today. Um, the, the next time you have a Republican president and, and Congress, you're going to have, you know, it's going to be 15 and then seven, right? It's just going to grow and grow and grow. That's problematic to me. Um, I think that the arguments for term limiting justices are great. I, you know, I mean, globally, we're the only major democracy that doesn't have term limits for judges. I don't think the framers would have ever understood how powerful the Supreme Court was going to be. I don't think they would have been able to conceptualize the notion of a Supreme Court justice serving for a quarter century, right? So 
there's very little historical argument that can be made for why we should not term limit Supreme Court justices. And I think it will move the court closer to the public, which I think is a good thing. Um, I think it will indirectly help address some of these ethical issues, which I think is a good thing. And wouldn't adding additional members to the court a step away from FDR's court packing attempts in the mid-30s? I mean, that's pretty much what, what these court expansion efforts are, right? I mean, FDR's was, was more of a threat, um, although he possibly could have done it. Um, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, today, I, you know, there's not, even among the hardcore Supreme Court reformers, there's not a great deal of support for Supreme Court expansion, because I think when we're being candid, we recognize that this is just not a, 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 a really great idea. Um, and it will probably keep the Supreme Court looking like a partisan institution because it will just, con you know, the, the size of the court will just change and change and change. Hmm. We've, we've been talking about um, Supreme Court term limits, but isn't the problem much larger than whether we enact term limits? I mean, in your view, uh, Professor Collins, have, haven't we become a democracy that places more emphasis on the outcome than, than the actual process. In other words, uh, all that matters is in the if, if you are if you are against abortion, all that matters is the how the how Dobbs was ruled. It doesn't matter how the decision was reached. It doesn't matter how you got the six three majority. So when the outcome becomes more important than the process, then um, doesn't that erode democracy? It certainly erodes confidence, uh, especially in a in a institution like the Supreme Court. But in some ways, the Supreme Court kind of got itself here, uh, moving too much too fast. And so, you know, one of the things that distinguishes, particularly the conservatives on the Supreme Court, is that they're really social movement conservatives, particularly regarding their affiliation to the Federalist Society, which is the preeminent conservative legal organization. Um, you know, they are they are in essence enacting into law the agenda of the Federalist Society and of the conservative legal movement more generally. And this is very, very easy to see. And when you saw President Trump campaign on the idea that he was going to appoint justices who were going to overturn Roe versus Wade, and then he made good on that promise, you know, to his credit. This is not a good look for the Supreme Court because the average American, you know, asks themselves, well, why did the Supreme Court overturn Roe versus Wade? And they don't think about the arguments made in Justice Alito's opinion. They think because Donald Trump promised he'd appoint justices that would do that. Yeah, for, just take a couple seconds to talk about what is the Federal Society? To explain it to our listeners, if you would. Yeah, it's an interesting organization because there's really kind of two Federalist societies. So, you know, the Federalist Society is a loose organization of conservatives um, who are active in the legal profession. You know, it starts in, in the early 1980s um, and basically it brings young conservative students in law school, for example, together and they host events, you know, part of part of their her appeal is that they traditionally have the best food um, at these law school parties. And so, you know, that's an attraction. Um, and then the other side of the Federalist Society, which is kind of behind the scenes, is that it is an exceptionally powerful interest group that effectively selected Donald Trump's not just Supreme Court nominees, but federal court nominees. They are the actors in the Federalist Society are central to all of these ethical standards. Um, they are the ones, th these ethical issues that Justice Alito and Justice Thomas um, are involved in. They are often on these trips to Indonesia or to Alaska. And so it's this somewhat shadowy network, again, pretty loose network of conservative legal elites that exert substantial power over the selection of federal judges. Mm -hmm. I recall when um, 
former president Joe Ford was in the house. Actually, I don't recall it. I actually read about it. I wasn't um, covering the Ford administration. Uh, but when, when um, President Ford was in the House, he famously stated that in, that in terms of impeachment, that high crimes and misdemeanors was whatever Congress says it is. Likewise, are we not in a moment where America's democratic Republican form of government is best defined by whatever we the people say it is in that moment? Yeah, I, I think we really are. And, you know, it's interesting that we talk about impeachment as we're discussing ethical issues uh, for Supreme Court justices, because there's a somewhat legitimate argument to be made that the standards for impeaching a federal judge are actually less than high crimes and misdemeanors, because the Constitution says that they serve during good behavior. So many legal scholars argue that good behavior is a lesser standard. And, you know, as these ethical standards scandals come out, we we might see more interest in talking about impeachment. Now, that being said, you know, I, I think you know as well as I that impeachment is whatever the House and the Senate says it is. Well, I guess, I guess, in a, in a, but in a larger sense, to your point, there was, um, I'm hearkening back to when um, Justice Fortas was forced to resign. There was a number of Democrats as well as Republicans, um, even though Fortas was appointed by, uh, nominated by um, Lyndon Johnson. Um, there were a number of uh, legislative uh, members on both sides of the aisle who said, okay, this is a bridge too far. It seems to me that the actions of Alito and Justice Thomas, let's just say that um, um, the, the the current uh, configuration of the House is exactly the same. If if Alito and Thomas were liberal members, we'd already be having impeachment hearings. There's probably something to that, yeah, unfortunately, and, and that's sad because you know if we go back a few decades even, uh, maybe more than a few, unfortunately, we did have folks on both sides of the aisle that really cared about institutions. And there's fewer and fewer of those. I, I mean, one thing that was interesting to me is I did see Lindsey Graham, um, you know, the famous you know, Republican senator actually make a positive comment about about the need for ethics reform in light of the recent allegations against Justice Alito, you know, that's a step in the right direction because I think it's important that we look at these things and we strip partisanship out of the picture. So, you know, I, I think if this was, if these were Democratic appointees, if these were liberal justices, I would hope Democrats would be willing to say the same things they're saying with regard to Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, but I'm not, Confident that would be the case. It, it isn't that isn't that part of the problem that there was a what giving your last answer there was a time where the democratic norms the guardrails that held us in were preeminent. Now party affiliation and as you mentioned earlier party and partisanship is now preeminent. I mean to, to paraphrase Lincoln, how long can a nation endure on 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 that uh, terrain. A absolutely. And, and it's it's getting worse because we're disrupting institutional norms that used to keep the train on the tracks. You know, I'm thinking here about the refusal to give Merrick Garland an up or down vote. I'm thinking about getting rid of the filibuster to get Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. I'm thinking about, you know, undoing everything that was done to Merrick Garland to get Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. So as these as institution institutional norms and institutions die, it's very, very hard to bring those back. You know, go, I don't think um, again, um, apologies to listeners who may think this sounds partisan, but I don't think there is a member um, who leans conservative that would be pleased if instead of Mitch McConnell, it was Chuck Schumer who did the exact same thing with two uh, nomin conservative nominees in the same way, you know, in terms of Merrick Garland or a fast-tracking um, 
a liberal member of the court. So I don't think any uh, conservative member would be pleased with that. So if it's probable on one side, but it's okay with another, we've sort of devolved into this contact sport rather than a democratic Republican form of government. Yeah, it's we're really in an era of raw power, right? It's raw partisan politics, and it's really about outcomes. It's not about processes, as you've mentioned before. And especially when we're talking about judges and courts, procedures matter, institutional legitimacy matters. And as we strip all, all of that away, you know, one day we're going to wake up and find out the emperor has no clothes. It's, it's really almost like uh, uh, death by a thousand cuts or you ever heard that scenario like you know the salami test where you have a stick of salami and you and you ask me for a piece and I say no you cut off a thin slice and I don't say anything and you sort of repeat that process to a point to where it gets to a point diminishing returns so there's no point for me to argue about it I see our democracy going in that direction and am I hyperbolic or do you worry about that as well Oh, I worry about it. I worry about it. Um, the destruction of, of institutional norms, not just regarding the Supreme Court, but, but in, involving lots of other institutions and in government, is highly problematic. And, and this country has, you know, I mean, we, we've reached the point that the United States of America can no longer say we have a peaceful transition of power every four years. I mean, if that's not an alarm bell, I'm not sure what is. Hmm. Finally, what what are you saying to your students now? I, I, we're talking about the, the things that we've been talking about, and that's why I, I appreciate these conversations. We've been talking a lot about institutional norms. We've been talking a lot about how there's been changes in the Supreme Court. Um, but one of the other things I've been trying to do is, is talk about solutions. And so, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, here's here's what's going on and, and here's why it's bad. It's another thing to, to offer solutions because it's gonna be their generation, hopefully that'll fix this and restore faith in American democracy and restore faith in the Supreme Court. And so I'm hoping to give them the tools to, to both diagnose but also to help fix some of the, these issues that the country's facing. Mm -hmm. Professor Paul Collins, sir, I wanna thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the Public Morality. It's good, good to have you back on the broadcast. Thank you for your sage insight, sir. Thank you very much, Byron. It's always a pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.